Recovery Elevator, episode 106. Now, addicts and alcoholics, they can think of a million reasons why it's okay to pick up the drink again. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years, five months, and one week. On today's podcast, we've got Hank. That's H-E-N-K. He's from the Netherlands, so he's very happy, and he explains how he used a fishing rod to help him stay sober. Oh yeah, he's been sober for a little over five years. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe Ari. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. How do most people get sober? I assumed that most people got sober through traditional 12-step programs, inpatient and outpatient treatment centers. However, after digging a little bit, the results surprised me. So what are the odds that you'll get sober on your own? And I found this article on addiction.com. 12-step programs, treatment centers, and outpatient programs aren't the only way to kick your alcohol problem. You can do it all by yourself. Now, I'm going to throw in an asterisk right now before we get any further. I'm sure a lot of you out there are listening and jumping up and clicking your heels saying to yourself, wow, I don't need to go to an AA meeting. I don't need to do outpatient or inpatient treatment to get sober. This isn't like getting a C on your biology exam where you just need to do the minimal amount of work to pass. In recovery, like I say, there's a hard way and a harder way to get sober. The harder way, well, that's where recovery lies. The belief that the only surefire method for ending problematic alcohol use is to get professional help began in the 1980s, says William Miller, PhD from Albuquerque, New Mexico. He says, when television advertisements for treatment programs, especially one that had the camera on a grave-looking individual, perpetuated the message that if you don't get help, you would die. We've all seen similar programs like this, maybe not quite as drastic now in the 2000s, but anecdotal findings in the scientific literature about addiction treatment and recovery, as well as data from the National Epidemiological Survey on Alcohol-Related Conditions, which surveyed 43,000 people from 2001 to 2005, they tell a different story. According to this research, about half of all people who recovered from alcohol dependence did so by quitting completely, and the other half did so by reducing but not eliminating alcohol. Damn that other half. Only about 12% of people with alcohol dependence ever received specialty alcohol treatment. If you add in the number who attended Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, the number climbs to 14.6, which means that about 85% of people who have a problem with drinking don't get outside help. Damn the 85%. I'm not saying getting sober was easy for that 85%, but damn that 85%. This phenomenon is what addiction experts call spontaneous or natural remission or recovery. Apparently, this natural remission is common with all types of addiction and not just alcohol. 
Now, in my opinion, this goes to prove that today is your very best chance of getting sober. I've said that before on the podcast, that this disease is progressive. I think 85% of these people, they were riding the elevator down and they're like, damn it, this sucks. Hit the button, walked off the elevator, took a couple stairs back up and they were good. Now, recovery is one of the most confusing things in the entire world because you might be listening and saying, Paul, your last episode talked about being a dry drunk. These 85% of people, they probably didn't go to AA. They probably don't even work a program. They probably don't work recovery. Well, perhaps they're extremely high bottom drunks that could see the progression quickly and got off the elevator. Now, a natural remission for myself wasn't exactly the case. I didn't go to outpatient treatment or inpatient treatment, but I did go to AA religiously for the first year. At this moment in my recovery, I go to AA probably two to three to four to five times per month. Natural remission from alcohol didn't seem much of an option for me when I was naturally getting my ass kicked by alcohol for a long time. But I would fall under that category of getting sober without the help of inpatient or outpatient treatment. In fact, when I was volunteering at Hope Rehab in Thailand, many of the clients out there were surprised to hear that I got sober without treatment. It is possible. But again, I don't want you to be listening right now and say, hey, I can do this on my own. News flash, you can't. You can't do this on your own, but you don't necessarily have to go to inpatient treatment or outpatient treatment. Now, if you think long and hard about this for a second, you probably know one to two to several people in this 85%. I play on this hockey team called Hot Garbage. The majority of the time, we play like we're hot garbage, but ever so often, we win a game. I thought I was the only person on that team who didn't drink. I've been on this team for four years. After two years, I noticed after one game, a guy named Duncan refused a beer. I was like, Duncan, how come you're not drinking like everybody else on the team? He's like, oh, you know, I was in the military in Australia and I made an ass of myself one night and I just stopped drinking. In my mind, I was like, dude, what the fuck? That's it? That's all you had to do was just stop drinking? Made an ass of yourself one night in Australia and, and that's it? Wow, you son of a bitch. For me, it was a little bit harder. And Duncan is an awesome guy. Year three on the team, a guy named Jason. Again, I've played hockey with him for three years now. I noticed that he also declined to drink. He said, oh yeah, about 22 years ago, I noticed that life was getting worse with alcohol. So I just stopped. Yeah, I found it a lot harder to stop drinking after I started. And my wife kept complaining. So I, you know, just uh, stopped drinking. Again, I'm like, what the fuck, Jason? That's it? No, not, no, uh, no treatment, no outpatient treatment. No banging your head against the wall for a couple of years, a decade, anything like that? Nothing? Okay, awesome. Good for you. People like this are all around us. And one of my best friends named Nate, episode eight, same thing with him. He realized that life kind of sucked with alcohol, just stopped. He's been sober for over five years, has a newborn named Jack, and he's doing awesome. Now, I did read in a different article that this natural remission, this natural recovery is more common among those with higher incomes and more stable social and occupational support systems and people with greater recovery capital and support systems. I love the word recovery capital there. That's what I have labeled the term recovery portfolio. People with a lot of support systems around them have a much higher chance of a natural remission from alcohol. Now, if you are in early sobriety or in sobriety in general, or you want to quit drinking, I don't recommend going at it organically like the article says. I do recommend hitting it like Tom Cruise in Days of Thunder, hard and fast and strong. The harder way of getting sober, which is the right way of getting sober and finding recovery, is doing a lot of things that you don't want to do. Doing more work than you think is needed to stay sober. That's the way to do this. Okay, now let's hear from interviewee Hank. Hank, how are you? 
I am very good. Thank you. Nice. Hank, let's dive right into this. How long have you been sober? I'm sober since 13 September 2010. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be six and a half years clean and sober. Nice job. And actually in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be two and a half years sober. So we both got okay. that month of September. It's awesome. Well done. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. And before we get any further, Hank, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, are you married, and what do you like to do for fun? I'm originally from Holland, but since uh, just over three years, I'm living and working in Thailand. I'm working at uh, Hope Rehab, and I'm the program manager over there. I have a girlfriend. What I like to do for fun is motorbikes. I love motorbikes. I can talk the rest of the podcast about motorbikes, but uh, <laughs> let's don't do it. It's, it's a great hobby. I love motorbikes. I love the sound, the speed, the, the, the everything about it. Yeah, yeah. Hank, do you like kittens? Yeah, yeah, I do have two kittens, yeah, yeah. What are their names? Um, Paris and Mel. <laughs> I love it. And listeners, the last episode was what I learned while volunteering at Hope Rehab Thailand, and I had the pleasure to meet Paris and Mel in person all the way out in Thailand. We went to the market together, and then we ate, uh, you know, ate what we purchased at Hank's house. And Paris and Mel, they're just sweethearts. The only problem is I'm allergic to cats, so I kind of had to cut my visit short <laughs> over to Hank's house, but very nice guy, and I'm excited to get further into this interview because I've listened to Hank give workshops and classes at Hope Rehab Thailand, and he is a knowledgeable guy. I'm sure several value bombs will be dropped during this episode. But let's talk more about your drinking in the past. When did you start to realize that perhaps you had a drinking problem? I was 21 when I went into rehab for the first time, but my life derailed quite young, actually. And what was that rehab facility like? And maybe even back it up a little bit before you were 21. And first off, how, how old are you right now? I'm 36. I started um, drinking and uh, using when I was 13. And when I was 14, I was already quite uh, derailed. Uh, when I was 14, I got kicked out of school. I had to go to child court for the first time. 15 years old, I had my first problems with the police for selling illegal substances. And 21 was my first rehab. I became celebrated my 29th birthday in rehab, celebrated my 30th birthday in a different rehab. And yeah, one big disaster. How many rehab facilities and have you been to? I finished five long-term treatments. Nice. And you say finished where there's some others that you walk in the door and you're like, peace, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, sometimes after days, sometimes after a couple of weeks. Sometimes I left, sometimes I got asked to leave. And uh, yeah, because... I wanted to quit drinking and, and using them, but uh, I wanted to quit it, but not really. I wanted more of my problems to quit. I didn't want to listen. I didn't want to take on advice. I didn't want to follow the suggestions. And, and yeah, I wasn't ready. There was, yeah, not really a commitment to make the necessary change in my life to, to really quit alcohol. Yeah. And let me ask you a question. You mentioned, you know, alcohol was an issue as well as, well as other drugs. What I've heard on mm -hmm. this podcast before, and in my opinion, alcohol is the gateway drug. And when I was in Hope Rehab Thailand, there were a couple individuals that I spoke with that after two weeks, you know, say they were there for mm -hmm. cocaine or heroin or meth. But after a couple weeks in rehab, they came to the conclusion that alcohol was what brought them in that seat in the rehab clinic. Would you agree with that? Do you think alcohol was the one, the gateway drug that led you to try the other drugs? 100%. Yeah. When I drank alcohol, I become a 
totally different person and I don't care about what I do, what I take, who I hurt, what the consequences are. I'm totally different when I drink alcohol. My boundaries lower and I, I can't stop. I, when I drink, I can't stop until I fall on the floor, basically. Yeah, I find that so interesting to hear that marijuana has been labeled as the gateway drug. But from firsthand experience, I have found that alcohol is the gateway drug and perhaps, in my opinion, the most dangerous drug in the world that leads us in this these precarious situations and gets us into these spots that we never thought we'd be in before. Yeah, let's back it up to that last rehab facility. Is is what you learned in that rehab facility what stuck? Was that when you finally got sober? Yeah, yeah. That's the, the my last treatment I did six months. I got the recommendation to go long term and I spent there 25 weeks, so almost six months. I don't say the other rehabs were bad or so, but this time I was ready to listen. I was ready to learn. I became teachable. I, I had enough. I, I couldn't keep living the way I was living. It was just one big disaster and uh, family members didn't want to talk to me. I had huge, huge debts. I wasn't capable to keep a job or to keep a relationship. or, or And at the end, I couldn't take care of myself anymore. It, I had to change it. The, the problem with, with my addiction is, is that I tell myself it's pleasure while I'm in huge amounts of pain. In my last treatment center, I've learned that, that you can't run away from what's in your head. You can't drink it away because it stays there. And then you just need to work on it. And, and I did work on it. And then it wasn't always easy. But it's the best thing I've ever done is to quit drinking and quit all the other substances. So what do you think the difference was when you were finally ready to listen? Because you and I, we've both encountered people that have all the answers and they're in rehab and you tell yourself, well, if you had all the answers, you probably wouldn't be in this seat right now. What do you think the difference was on the last rehab center instead of the other previous four ones? You said you're ready to listen. What do you think you know, made you finally ready to quit? I had lost everything, basically. I was dying, basically. And there was no, I couldn't go back. It would be my, my death, basically. And then, yeah, I was in a terrible uh, shape physically and mentally. I was uh, harming myself. I was crying. I was, my house was, yeah, you can't even call it a house. Yeah, crack house, you could call it. Couldn't take care of myself. I had my neighbors and parents of my friends who brought me some food on a daily basis, basically trying to, to keep me alive. Yeah, yeah. And, and me, I could not go back to that. Yeah, and let me summarize that I lost everything. And that's when you finally were had let the rubber hit the road and, and gained some traction is that's the gift of desperation. And oftentimes when we you would get sober, we're we're crawling. We're not walking into these AA rooms, rehab centers or, you know, to the, the, the day our sobriety is, we wake up that day on our hands and knees and we just say, we cannot go anymore. And, you know, talk to me about the gift of desperation and how important that is. Yeah, the gift of desperation is what helped me save my life, basically. But it's extremely painful. If I look back on it, I wish I had got clean in my first treatment center. But my problems in the treatment centers before that, I was going to do it my way. I was going to go back to my using friends. I was I knew them my whole life. I was not ready to let them go. I I just didn't have enough pain. The gift of desperation, it's a gift. It got me clean, but it was extremely uh, painful in treatment center when I landed. And that it took a bit 
um, and starts realizing what I had done to myself, to my life, to my loved ones. I cried and I cried and I couldn't stop crying. And then when I got through that, I could build up my life. And it's the best thing I've ever done for myself is to quit. quit. That is often my retort when I hear qualms about getting sober qualms about god in aa and and people saying oh you know it's just really not the program for me it's too religious and i i get blank stares back when i say you know that's okay mm-hmm. because the pain will bring you back and you almost have to go out there and experience enough pain but you can hit the elevator button anytime you want and get off i'm going to go back to the metaphor of recovery elevator on that one and hank talk to me about a fishing rod a 30 euro fishing rod <laughs> that was extremely important to your sobriety tell us about that yeah, when when I got sober, uh stayed six months in the treatment center. After that, I came home, and that was really hard. I had a lot of time, no hobbies, no friends, uh, because I had to leave my friends. And I was sitting on my own in the middle of nowhere. I was I was moved somewhere where literally in, in the middle of nowhere, as far as possible in Holland. And in my treatment center. It was a 12-step based uh, program, and I was very hesitant uh, to it. But when they explained to me, like, you don't have to be religious. Eh? You, you can find a higher power. Eh? It's something that, that helps you stay clean and sober, something powerful. And, and I had to find my way in that. Eh? Over the years, it has evolved to, to what it is now. But at that time, like, something that I realized that was helping me stay clean and sober well, was nature. And when I got out of treatment, I had huge amounts of debt. So what I did, I, I, from my first little bit of money, uh, I bought a fishing rod for 30 euros. I still remember it. It was the first thing I bought uh, when I got home or as soon as I was able to, to buy it. And I lived a couple of hundred meters away from a big canal. And every time I was bored, when I was lonely, when I was angry, upset, annoyed, frustrated, uh, all the feelings I had to deal with without alcohol. I went to the canal and I sat there with my fishing rod, calming myself down because after treatment, I had to adjust to life on life's terms and adjust to people and people don't always do what you want. People don't always <laughs> respond on that. And, no, and that was very difficult. And then although I'd worked a lot of my behavior, I, there was still a lot of behavior I had to work on and sitting on the side of the canal with my fishing rod on my own and, and seeing the water moving and seeing the plants and, and feeling the wind. I spent hours and hours there. And it really helped me. So when I had all those feelings, I didn't run to a bar or, or, or somewhere else to, to uh, intoxicate myself. I went sitting there and thinking, uh, thinking about what do I got to do in this situation? What's best for my recovery? And in my last treatment center, I put my recovery at number one, more important than anything. Uh, and anything else came second. And figuring it out on the water side was I think it saved my life, actually. And although I was really resistant to a higher power and I didn't really know what to make of it, but I found my way in a way that worked for me. And then I have to say, this way worked for me. I could sit on the water and, and think myself out of where I had to think myself out of. And 
that that really helped me. And and the second thing I bought, and it was another month or two months later, were a pair of running shoes. And I know the brand, I won't say it. And I think they were 110 euros. <laughs> um, and I and I started running. And I downloaded um, Start to Run uh, on my MP3 player. Then then they have lessons, 20 lessons, 18 or 20. And they teach you to run five kilometer. If you've done those 20 lessons, they, you can run five kilometer. And after that, I did five to 10. And after a couple of months, I could run 11 kilometer in less than an hour. Wow. So with commitment and dedication, because they were very accessible. I could do them on my own. I could do them anytime I wanted. And they were very cheap, very affordable. I didn't have to pay. I didn't have to go. I wasn't hanging around with wrong people. So I was working on my health. I was working on my peace of mind with the fishing and a bit of mindfulness on the side. And then so slowly I started uh, moving forward. Hank, there were a couple value bombs you dropped there. Number one that I took away from that was you mentioned at your last rehab facility, you had placed your recovery, your sobriety, number one on your priority list. Mm -hmm. And that's how it has to be. Right now, my recovery comes in front of my family, my dog, believe it or not, my beautiful standard poodle puppy mm -hmm. named Ben. It comes in front of everything. And you might think that's strange, but just think about it this way. If you lose sobriety, then everything else goes. You know, my mom is totally cool with me putting sobriety in front of her because she knows and she's seen firsthand that once that goes, that's gone. The other value bomb that I got is you sat there with your 30 euro Zebco fishing rod and you felt the emotions you felt and you thought about the emotions. You didn't use a chemical substance. You didn't use alcohol to run away from your emotions. And, and that's how it's got to be because oftentimes yeah. drinking is but a symptom of what we're feeling at that moment. We use these, this, these substances, alcohol as coping skills to escape the reality. But you just sat there with your fishing rod and I loved hearing that story in person. And it was equally as powerful hearing it over Skype. Thank you so much for sharing this. And I want to fast forward a little bit to one of the classroom sessions that I attended with you in Thailand. And this was powerful. This is probably the most powerful experience that I witnessed in Thailand is on one week, you said, hey, everybody, I'd like to do this exercise that we learned in class. And the next week, you know, when we meet again a week from now, I want you guys to share with us. And the week had passed. We came in the class and you said, okay, who did the exercise? And I think like a couple people raised their hands. And you just stood up and you're like, hey, guys, this is why most of you won't stay sober is because only a couple of you guys put in the work. Tell me more about that and why, unfortunately, a lot of people don't stay sober even when they go to rehab. Yeah, g going to rehab won't keep you clean. It's doing the work. That's what, what keeps you clean and sober. So for me, it's very important to make people aware of that and because I want to get as many people clean as I can. Addicts have certain behaviors, alcoholics and addicts, that they develop it over time. And, and some people have a lack of motivation. Some people, the, yeah, they can dry drunk syndrome. All kinds of things can be there that that stops them. And, and for us, it's really important in the groups to, to make people aware of what are blocks to recovery. Yeah, Because I can only tell them what helps them achieve abstinence, what they can do to achieve abstinence, but I can't do it for them and that they need to do it. People wonder, like, like why, why are the relapse rates high? Eh? If you look worldwide, like, like why is that? Uh, some rehabs are better than others. Uh, some private clinics uh, score better, some government clinics score less, but on average, it's still 
high. So, so make people aware of the importance of doing the work. That that that's yeah well, one of the key elements that that people become aware. Like, hey, if I just sit here and I chill out, then nothing changes. Eh? In in the fellowship of AI and NA, they they say like nothing changes if nothing changes. So so you have to, the dry drunk syndrome. Eh? So if that's when someone isn't drinking or using, but they still think, act, and, be, and behave as like they are using. And, and that needs to change because the person you were what was drinking, if you don't change the person, you, then you will be drinking again. And, and that, that's a very important uh, process, yeah. And then they say things like, yeah, yeah, if you ever wondered why the relapse rates are so high, then this is your answer. And then the people who didn't raise their hand, they might think like, oh, yeah, I might need to start doing the work this afternoon. And then, and then, then, then we help them forward. We have a lot of staff that, that helps them forward. I noticed that the expressions on people's faces were very real. And you guys weren't skirting around the issues, beating around the bush that perhaps that people would drink after rehab. And, you know, it's a lot of those people, nobody, nobody's going into rehab thinking they're going to drink afterward. Well, I don't know the answer to that hundred percent, but it, it was the, mm-hmm. the looks on people's faces are like, wow, this, this, you know, what I'm doing is not working. And I love what you said. Nothing changes if nothing changes. And I didn't have to change much when I got sober. I just had to change everything up. Oh, you've heard that one before. <laughs> you got to change a lot yeah. of things. Very powerful moment. So I got to say, thank you for that. Even with me being sober for two and a half years, that was powerful for me because I learned that the road into recovery narrows and I still have to continuously change my recovery and evolve as my sobriety time lengthens. Now, walk us through a day in the life of Hank. How are you staying sober <laughs> with almost six and a half years of sobriety? My sobriety is still the most important thing I have and everything else comes second. Now, in the beginning, I did the 90 meetings in 90 days. I don't do everyday meetings, although recovery is my work, so that helps me a lot. But I do have a sponsor. I'm at step four uh, at the moment. I see him regularly, go to meetings regularly. When I travel, I always go to meetings wherever I am. I love meeting all the people from everywhere. What is really impactful, what I have on a daily basis, is I see people coming in. In, into the rehab and every time I see someone coming in I think like okay I won't drink and use for the coming period because the pain people are in physically mentally the devastation the relationships ruined all those things I don't crave alcohol and and other things when I see that happening addiction is so much pain I don't care about a glass of beer or a glass of wine anymore it's it's the the first year was really difficult for me and then I go from always drinking to not drinking that that was a transition period and and when I was one year clean clean and sober it was the first time I managed to do it I was driving in my car and I was crying tears rolling over my cheeks because I I started realizing hey maybe I can do it I managed to make it one year maybe wow. I can stay stay long term clean. I'm really connected with the fellowship. I, I know tons of people. The fellowship ha- ha- helped me enormously by not sitting alone, not being bored, hanging out with the right people, all those things. 
I can't even describe how much it helped me. Although I was extremely hesitant in the beginning, it helped me uh, more than than I, I can describe, basically. And Hank, before we reach the rapid fire round, I got one more question for you. Relapse was a big part of my recovery, and it sounds like you were at five rehab facilities, so it was a part of your story. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on relapse? A relapse is a sign of a reservation in your recovery, uh, in, in my opinion. Now, addicts and alcoholics, they can think of a million reasons why it's okay to pick up the drink again. <laughs> and that, that is the mechanism that is the mechanism that needs attention. And because uh, alcoholics, they drink because they're alone, but they also drink because they're with people. They drink because the sun shines. They drink because it rains. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> we can find a million yeah. reasons to have a drink. And then if you put the drink aside, we need to look at, at all those reasons because nothing justifies a relapse. Nothing justifies a relapse. If I think if my father dies, it's it's so hard I can't handle that then I have to have a drink or when I lose my job it's so hard I have to have a drink yeah, all those things all those reservations those things happen hey, it's life things happen so if I said all those things then then it's based on on those yeah like I'm gonna stay for a while but if one of those things happen I'll drink again then I end up drinking again and basically nothing is so bad that drinking won't make it worse so I print that in my head and I had difficult moments, of course, because life isn't roses always, or how do you say that in English? I had difficult moments and sometimes I just had to keep repeating that to myself, like nothing is so bad that drinking won't make it worse. Nothing is so bad that drinking won't make it worse. I just kept repeating it because basically a craving takes 20 minutes as long as you don't feed it. If you start distracting yourself after 20 minutes, you're through it. And in the fellowship, there are so many phone numbers, and I just kept calling them. And I tell my story to one, hang up, and then I call the second, and I just kept talking till I got through it. And and although even my family didn't understand, and my, my father's, I was doing the 1990, and after a couple of weeks, my father said, like, uh, Hank, why are you going sitting and spending every evening with all those drunks and junkies? And I said, okay, you, you don't need to understand. But it, they told me if I keep doing this, I will stay clean and sober. So I'm just going to do it. And it's now become a habit, but it really helped me. Nothing is so bad that drinking won't make it worse. I love what you said there about how cravings have a lifespan, about 20 minutes. And I've heard that before. So if you don't feed your craving, just wait about 20 seconds, set the timer on your phone, and the craving will pass. Yeah, 20 to 30 minutes. That's that's awesome. And Hank, we have reached yeah. the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, are you ready? Okay, go for it. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. It's a common response. <laughs> Hank, number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Christmas 2009, on my own, in my house, crying, uh, hurting myself. My house was a mess. My life was a mess. Lost everything. My girlfriend walked away on me, sitting on my own. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. I think one of mine was Christmas 2007 for me. I painted my bar in Spain by myself while I was drinking. That was a rough Mm. day for me, too. Number Mm, two, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking? (laughs) Uh, Quite a few, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One moment was when I crashed my my scooter in front of all my friends. I crashed it in a bad way. 
<laughs> There's I, never a good way to crash a scooter in front of your friends. No, right. If I, I wanted to do it tough, but uh, I went it totally wrong, and, and yeah, it was a disaster. And they thought it was really funny. <laughs> I love it. Next question, Hank. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? That's a good question, actually. At the moment, I'm really stable, peaceful, calm, good routine, all those things. And I really like where I work in the rehab. I feel really comfortable with the clients, with the staff, with the environment. For now, I don't have the urge to move forward. I'm really comfortable. And, and I think later when I look back on this period of my life, it's probably one of the best periods of my life. That is so important to recognize that while you're in the moment. I love it. And next question, mm -hmm. what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a book. This could be an app, a program. What's your favorite resource? Intherooms.com. I don't need to think about it. I use that uh, on a daily basis. I tell all the clients about it before they leave. Online video meetings, meeting finder, they got everything. I love intherooms.com. And if I would say a book, it would be Living Sober. Yep, read both those. I know about intherooms.com. Great resources. If you're listening right now, I encourage you to write those down and check them out. And Hank, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> uh, that makes me laugh because uh, I know what it is. I got two actually. Can I name two? Yeah, absolutely. Just do it. The first, first one, I thought I was some sort of a cool guy. Uh, but my counselor told me, Hank, you got to stop being a dick. <laughs> and That's good advice. <laughs> Hank, stop being a dick. Okay, great advice. <laughs> <laughs> but it really hit at home because I, I had such a different perception of myself that I really like... Oh, like, what makes you think? Okay. Um, <laughs> the second one is uh, from the same person, a lovely Scottish lady, um, but she knew how to talk to get rid of me. Um, she said, you got to take the cotton out of your ears and stick them in your mouth. And so I got to stop talking and start listening. And uh, <laughs> they both stuck with me, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've never said that to somebody, but you know, we've both talked to people that have all the answers, but yet they can't stay sober. You just want to say, "Hey, take the cotton out of your ears and stick it in your mouth." I uh, love it. <laughs> and yeah. last question: In what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in early recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? I would one hundred percent encourage and support you with that process. It's the best thing you can do for yourself is quitting alcohol. Okay, can I get, say a little bit about my story? Oh, absolutely. I thought, I thought when I got clean that my life would be over. If I can't be drunk and partying, my life is going to be over. But in recovery, I could see like, what do I call partying? Sitting on my own, feeling sad, depressed, and, and drinking myself drunk. When I go to a party, people don't like me because I don't or I can't behave normal. So I was telling myself, and I was really convinced my life would be over if I don't drink. But actually, my life started when I stopped drinking. And it's so different than what I had imagined. My life is so much better. I can talk hours about it. It's the best thing someone can do for themselves is to quit alcohol and drug. And if you think you can't quit, well, that means you have a real problem and then you got to get help. My life started when I quit drinking. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that, expanding on that. And before we depart, Hank, give listeners your own 
customize you might be an alcoholic if line you might be an alcoholic if you think alcohol is a solution yeah that's that's a, that's a big one right there i can resonate with that for sure well thank you so much hank for joining us all the way from thailand i know there's a big time difference so i appreciate you joining us helping me stay sober it was a pleasure to meet you in person and i do hope to make the hope rehab thailand volunteering experience a yearly one so hopefully we can meet again in person you're more than welcome and if one of your listeners wants to come they can always uh, send us an email and then we can see what we can work out yeah absolutely and to expand on what he just said if you would like to go volunteer at Hope Rehab Thailand, where he's not talking about just come as a client or a patient, you can also oh, go no. there. Oh, no, I meant to volunteer, yeah. Yeah, you can also go there and volunteer. So just send, uh, where, where will they send an email to? Hank at HopeRehabThailand.com. And that's H-E-N-K, not H-A-N-K. Yeah. yeah. H-E-N-K, thanks, it's a Dutch spelling. <laughs> I love it. And Hank, he sounds like a teddy bear he is, but he is uh, what, a member of the tallest country in the world, Holland. How tall are you? Like six foot four, six five? <laughs> uh, 196 in centimeter. Gosh, I just picture this giant with a Zebco fishing rod just dangling it over the weeds. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny. All right, Hank, you, thank you so much again for spending the time with us today. Thank you, Hank. You're welcome. Thank you, too. I want to talk to you guys for a second about Annie Grace, author of the best-selling book, This Naked Mind. She also has created This Naked Mind video coaching course. It works without willpower. You will learn why setting limits never works and what to do instead. It is rational and intelligent approach firmly based in the most up-to-date psychology and neuroscience. It provides a proven and methodical blueprint for change, which guides you step-by-step through getting started and making change stick. You can get this course at recoveryelevator.com forward slash Annie and use the promo code elevator50, that's one word, elevator50 for 50 bucks off. Recovery Elevator, I've got some cool news for you. I've been selected to do a TEDx talk on April 8th in Bozeman, Montana. What am I going to talk about? Archery. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to talk about how I feel like I've been duped by alcohol. We all remember those motivational speakers coming to our schools in the 90s and the 80s, the 2000s. And saying, hey, don't do meth, don't do heroin, don't do cocaine, and stay away from crack as well. I heard that message loud and clear and stayed away from all those. What I never heard was, yeah, watch out for alcohol, the drug that kills more people than all the other drugs combined. The drug that kills almost 3 million people worldwide. The drug that is involved in one out of every three fatal traffic fatalities in America. Whoa, you don't say. I always thought when I was 21, it was a green light. I didn't wait till I was 21, but you get the point. With alcohol, it's like pass go, collect 200 bucks. You're totally fine. You're in the clear. Well, what happened after that? No one ever talked to me about in high school. Alcohol totally kicked my ass for a little over a decade, and I found it very hard, almost nearly impossible to quit. So I'm very honored, and I look at this as a tremendous opportunity to help eradicate the stigma and educate people about alcohol. So... Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down, we gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this.